0: China Talk, we're here back today with Lars Schonander and Nick Mulder. This is part two of our interview about Nick's book, The Economic we- Weapon. But part one was kind of for like the real ones. So if you're still moderately curious about this, maybe this, maybe just this show will be enough for you. Cause this is because in this episode, we're gonna get into the really juicy stuff around the late 1930s, lead up to World War II. And interesting parallels that you might see today with what the U.S. is doing with respect to China and technology. So anyway, stay tuned for that. So we left off talking about some fun hypotheticals where Franco could have been flipped to the allies. Didn't end up happening. He invades Ethiopia and the League of Nations lays the boom down on him, but like too slowly to really make him lose the war. But this experience of a middling power getting really squeezed by the international community really helped focus minds, you argue, Nick, both in Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. So what was the reaction that you saw in the sources for the leading Axis powers as they saw Italy struggling under the weight of global economic sanctions? Yes, Italy is put under sanctions about a month after
1: it invades Ethiopia, so November 1935, and what you can see from that point onward in discussions in Nazi Germany, particularly, but also in Japan in in the months and years following that, is an increasing focus on what sanctions would mean for them. In Germany, in fact, this already precedes the sanctions against Italy. They, of course, had been exposed to a particularly nasty blockade in World War I. They have that memory. Uh, The Nazi ideology is very concerned with food security. So they have plenty of reasons to be focused on that. But why the League of Nations sanctions against Italy really matter is because they show that this, according to many historians and many people today still think that it was powerless uh, organization, the, the League of Nations, turns out not to be so powerless at all because it imposes Big sanctions, 52 countries participate. And it's worth bearing in mind that at the time, there are only around 58 sovereign states in the world. So the number of countries not part of these sanctions is really small. The number of uh, total number of sovereign states is maybe around 58 or 60. So this is an almost hermetic, in terms of participation, sanctions effort. It really is a huge international effort. It's much more akin to, say, the sanctions on Iraq in the 90s in terms of how many countries participate than it is to the sanctions against russia today the intensity of the sanctions of course is not maximal like we already discussed but the fact that this coalition can come together and within five to six weeks after the war starts erect a really big international scheme to throttle italy's access to crucial commodities and actually ban italian exports from being sold in their own domestic markets that's pretty worrying and the main focus of the sanctions planners was this treasury theory of sanctions so they wanted to slowly make italy run out of foreign exchange reserves the way to do that was to make sure italy couldn't export anything and so ultimately they would be thrown back on limited reserves and within a few months the estimates at the time were somewhere between eight to maybe 15 months italy would have to choose whether they would continue to arm their military or choose their civilian economy to try and save what they could of civilian consumption so That was the the idea behind it. And in Germany, which at that time also was operating really on a shoestring amount of foreign exchange reserves, this was very worrisome. Germany, of course, was engaged in one of the largest armament efforts uh, ever seen in a capitalist economy in peacetime, as Adam Tooze shows in, in Wages of Destruction. And their external dependence was massive in order to run all those steel industries, in order to get all the energy, the coal, the oil, you need to import it and interestingly because of the great depression imports of these commodities had actually become cheaper because there had been a huge commodity downturn so you think that the great depression causes trade to collapse and the sanctions will no longer work actually the opposite is true for a number of key commodities the commodity downturn is so severe that it becomes extremely cheap to source oil coal iron ore um, textiles uh, raw inputs for a variety of industries scrap metal from abroad so that is the weak Achilles heel that Nazi Germany and Japan also with a very similar industrial structure both have. And that is what they uh, choose to then start protecting. And in Germany, there's a really direct effect of the league sanctions against Italy on thinking the uh, main body that's in charge of national defense planning, it's called the Reich Defense Council, Reichsverteidigungsrat, gets together in early December 1935, and it has all the key people there, uh, Jan Mar Schaff, the Reichsbank chairman and finance minister, the heads of the general staff and planners, Jodl, Keitel, And soon in uh, the spring of 36, Hitler joins them too. And at each of those meetings, they emphasize, we need to look at what's happening to Italy. We need blockade resilience. And we need to figure out how we move, not just from a kind of trade commercial protectionism, but to an economic model that is immune uh, to sanctions. And what they mean by that is it's immune to having raw material imports severed. And they call that Rohstofffreiheit, raw materials freedom. So they have total autonomy because they have all the raw materials they need for war. And that becomes the aim of their planning going forward. And the main uh, thing that it manifests in is the famous four-year plan that is announced in the spring of 1936, while the league sanctions against Italy are still in effect. And it's then given a particularly powerful head. Hermann Göring becomes the head of the uh, organization running that, and they have a goal Within 18 months, we want to be independent in terms of fuel from the rest of the world economy. And within four years, we want to be totally ready for an aggressive war of conquest.
0: Can you talk about the difference between autarky and autarky?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, right, we spell it different ways. Some people write it with a K. That's, I guess, the most common. But there you also see it sometimes with C-H. And... There's an interesting etymological difference between them because the older version is autarchy with CH, which comes uh, from Arche uh, and autos. Um, so it means to rule oneself, to be independent, to command or be in command of, of oneself and one's own position. And that basically just means that you have autonomy, political or otherwise. and. Um, Autarky with a K, actually, uh, it comes from the verb arcan, which is to suffice or to subsist. And that means that you could actually survive off of your own resources. So that's a narrower definition. And the interesting thing, at the time, uh, one of the famous Italian economists, Luigi Ainaudi, notes this. Some states that try and become autarkic with a K, so actually have access to all the resources that they need within their own territory, lose the ability to have full independence because they need to engage in policies that are so radical uh, that they effectively close off lots of options politically for themselves. And that's actually what I think ends up happening in the 1930s. The road to full self-sufficiency is a a road that goes through conquest, and that ends up accelerating this war uh, that had already been in the air, was already very possible, but it ends up bringing on a kind of war um, that uh, is is particularly uh, virulent and aggressive and even genocidal, I would argue, because of some of these dynamics.
0: Let's talk a little bit about like import substitution and the role that German industry tried to do to not only become self sufficient by like conquering other people's lands that had coal and cotton, but also changing the way that they consume those those raw materials in order to make themselves more self sufficient.
1: Yes, there's a number of schemes that they launched in order to become self-sufficient, and some of them had already been pioneered in World War One and in the 1920s. So World War One we mentioned last time, has this big scientific breakthrough, right, that today still powers a lot of global agriculture and sustains a huge part of the world population, which is the synthetic f- fixation of nitrogen, uh, which allows you to make fertilizer using simply oxygen. Uh, and um, it means that you no longer need to use uh, saltpeter, and uh, some uh, nitrates that you get out of the ground, you can actually uh, use uh, atmospheric um, components. That's one thing. The other thing is uh, fuel hydrogenation. And IG Farben, which becomes infamous for creating Zyklon B, the gas used in the Holocaust, also uh, is one of the main huge German chemical corporations that pioneers a technique for turning coal into oil. So they're both forms of carbon energy, but. Uh, coal is a lot harder and it's kind of as if you imagine even for you know people who don't do chemistry that you add a ton of water to coal and you put it under enormous amount of pressure and you heat it and actually you get something approximating some sort of oily substance you don't need to refine it it's extremely energy intensive very wasteful and very inefficient so you need an enormous amount of feedstock and um Uh, fuel in order to get this uh, reaction going but it is possible for countries that only have coal to turn it into gasoline and a variety of other things particularly aviation fuels Uh, you can make quite well through fuel hydrogenation so that's the technology that the nazis hope is going to make them ultimately independent of imports of oil and as the league of nations considers this sanctions measure extending the sanctions against italy with an embargo on oil imports it becomes very important. And the Japanese also take it over IG Farben, the chemical corporation uh, in Nazi Germany that is accelerating this with huge subsidies from the Nazi government also sends people to Japan and in Manchuria and North Korea, the Japanese have access to huge coal reservoirs. So they build a number of plants, both the Imperial Japanese Navy and the Imperial Japanese Army have their own competing fuel hydrogenation projects. And apparently the north korean regime today still has some of these plants in the same places that the japanese navy built them in the 1930s and um, north korea has massive coal reserves so there's speculation that kim jong-un might be able to make it through a, fuel, a full fuel embargo by using basically nazi era technology um wild yeah yeah the other really wild thing by the way is that the main post-war user of fuel hydrogenation is apartheid south africa so they, too, have the same thing. They have massive coal reserves. They get put under an oil embargo, and they uh, use it in order to circumvent that partially. And uh, this day, to, today, actually, the largest fuel hydrogenation plot is in South Africa, uh, owned by the South African state oil company,
0: Sasol. So this has a really interesting afterlife, this technology. You started taking us to East Asia, so let's stay there. How does Imperial Japan's thinking change post-Ethiopia?
1: Yes, Japan is even more than Italy, I would say, a country that is really on the fence for a long time about what its posture towards the West should be. And this is the general thing that I would try and emphasize in the book about the interwar period. The war with Nazi Germany was to some degree probably inevitable at some point. It's just in the nature of the Nazi regime that they were going to try and and use violence. But the fact that Mussolini ended up fighting on the side of the fascists was already less necessary, as we talked about. The fact that Japan uh, really was going to side with the Axis uh, is even more remarkable. And there is a much bigger split within Japan about who the opponent should be. It's equally imaginable that they would have gone to war against the Soviet Union, but remained on the side of the uh, Western allies, Britain and the United States, who they rightly saw as much bigger adversaries. But one of the things that ends up derailing the Japanese liberals, so to speak, or the the more pro-Western camp in Japan's plans is the war in China. They, of course, are partially themselves to blame for this, because Japan has already invaded Manchuria with a false flag operation in 1931. The um, Imperial Japanese Army right? the Manchukuo army becomes a sort of state within a state that ends up undermining um, the central government and essentially running its own foreign policy. But by the time it's 1937 or so, so we're now in the immediate aftermath of the Ethiopia sanctions, the Japanese state is in a a situation where it still could go either way. And what ultimately ends up happening is that its officers in China, one camp of those officers end up in a fight with Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. And actually, it seems now, according to most historians of China, that the nationalists too were actually kind of pining for a confrontation at that point. So in 31, China didn't want war. But in 37, the calculation seems to have been on the part of some people in the KMT uh, ruling elite that Japan was going to get stronger every year. So if they were going to fight Japan, better do it now than later. So interestingly, you can see a whole number of countries and groups in this period have this sense of uh, temporal claustrophobia. It's a yeah. term from Chris Clark in his book Sleepwalkers, and it's not just the Japanese and the Germans. It's also the Chinese actually that uh, want to have a confrontation with Japan sooner rather than later. So that ends up triggering a war in '37 that is, you know, arguably the start of World War II um, because it, it directly carries on into into the Second World War. So uh, that complicates the picture dramatically, and it ends up uh, triggering a slow drifts essentially of. Japan into an anti-western alliance because the West ends up siding uh, with the Chinese resistance uh, because of course they uh, want to make
0: sure that Japan doesn't take over China entirely. Temporal claustrophobia What's your take I mean the the causes of World War II are multivariate and I just read your book I've read many other books uh, but yours is the, yours is the one that's most front and center of my mind so like I'm, I'm curious you know you sort of thinking back, it seems pretty clear that in the final moments when you know Japan is thinking about starting Pearl Harbor, when Hitler is thinking about invading Poland and then invading the Soviet Union, this sort of very human fear that even if our odds are bad now, they're going to keep getting worse. And instead of reevaluating whether or not you want to play the game that gave you these bad, bad odds in the first place you decide to sort of take the plunge and, and roll the iron dice, as the case may be. Let's talk about what the U.S. ended up doing after 37, as we get into 39, 40, and, and, and 41 when it comes to economic sanctions on Japan. Yes. So the U.S. has already been considering economic sanctions on Japan since
1: 1931, since the original invasion of, of Manchuria and the creation of Manchukuo. But at that time, Herbert Hoover is, is the president. And he holds back on it. It takes quite a while into the Roosevelt administration, really Roosevelt's second term, before he decides to start getting tougher on Japan. And he has his famous quarantine speech in the fall of 37. And after that, there are a number of incidents. And by the summer of 1938, he for the first time begins to call on American companies to institute what he calls uh, moral embargoes. So voluntary restrictions by American firms. One of the reasons that he's doing this is because there are neutrality acts in effect, which make it impossible for the US president to discriminate by cutting off trade with one country that's party to a conflict and not with the other. So the neutrality acts actually oblige the US government to break off arms trade with both parties to a conflict. So this is very tricky for Roosevelt. He has to negotiate these neutrality acts. And if he declares there is a war going on in East Asia, then China also loses access to American arms. So this is how why he needs to first go through the private sector and try and have them do it voluntarily. Now, at some point, they find ways around it. And by 1939, the World War uh, has broken out in Europe, too, with the invasion of Poland, and that makes it a lot easier. And that summer, uh, Japan keeps pushing further and further, not just in northern China against British diplomatic presence, but also into Indochina. And there, Roosevelt first starts to restrict with this new law that he has, which is the Fence Production Act, uh, shipments of um, a certain kind of steels and uh, gasoline for airplanes. So inputs into the Japanese war machine. And the other thing is that Japan at that point is even more dependent on U.S. trade and on on U.S. exports of these uh, commodities than it was in 1935 and 36, because the British Empire is uh, totally focused on producing for its own war effort because it's fighting against the Nazis and uh, it has prioritized its own colonies. So the British Empire goes into essentially full economic lockdown mode. Japan can't really trade that much with them anymore. So uh, Burma, India, those markets become a lot more difficult to access. So it becomes more and more dependent on um, uh, trade with the US. And then Roosevelt steadily ratchets up the pressure in 1940. He lets his commercial treaty expire. So trade becomes more onerous between uh, the U.S. and Japan. And by the summer of 1940, after the Nazis have taken over all of Europe and Japan also pushes into Indochina, is now trying to take over uh, uh, French colonial possessions there, you know, because Paris has fallen to the Nazis. He decides it's really time to start putting a limit on this. And he begins to openly restrict um, a lot of uh, iron ore and scrap metal shipments to Japan. So these are actually already the first full discriminatory economic sanctions, right? He's targeting Japan openly. He's trying to throttle this key raw material, uh, making sure they just cannot produce enough to sustain their war in East Asia. And uh, it, it comes to a real head by the time that in um, the summer of 1941, now the situation has escalated further still because lend lease has gone into effect. So the U.S. is now also bankrolling the war effort of the British Empire, of uh, Chiang Kai-shek, of the Nationalists and of a number of other countries. And it actually needs to prioritize raw materials for itself. So part of the story of economic sanctions against Japan that ended up triggering the Japanese attack is that the U.S. cannot simultaneously mobilize its own war industry and keep exporting at the same rate to Japan. It, Actually, there's just a limited amount of North America raw materials. And this then means that even if there hadn't been really severe restrictions, Japan would have seen some dip in what it would have been able to obtain from the U.S. But what Roosevelt ends up doing is he puts restrictions in place in July 1941, and then he leaves on a trip to meet Churchill on this big cruiser where they draft the Atlantic Charter together in August 41. And while he's away... Dean Acheson and Morgenthau at the Treasury actually end up on their own initiative, wrapping up and increasing the sanctions, making them very hard to take off. They freeze all Japanese foreign assets. They do essentially a full asset freeze. The US has not declared war on Japan at all, right? So these are actions where they openly target Japan's foreign financial reserves and they cut off oil supplies. And
0: that's really the, the thing that sort of sets the final stage of the temporal claustrophobia in motion. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's play the counterfactual game. There are two fantastic books on this, Arihoto's Japan, 1941, and Michael Barnhart's Japan Prepares for Total War, both of whom kind of hint at the idea that perhaps America could have, like, nudged Japan to go invade the Soviet Union <laughs> instead by not necessarily putting this stuff on. I'm curious if you think there was a way in which these sanctions could have been rolled out in a more deft manner that gave Japan more of an exit ramp than they ended up feeling like they had.
1: Um, I think it's a very interesting suggestion that they could have pushed them towards invading the Soviets. But ultimately, I don't think it would have made a difference and it wouldn't have been a feasible solution for the Japanese leadership. And here's why the core commodity that they are extremely anxious about is oil. They have none of it on the Japanese Isles. They have some technology to turn. Korean and Manchurian coal into oil, but it's still not the full amount that they need. And what they really can do is they can import from the U.S., they can import from Mexico. And then there are a number of other places like Iran, Venezuela. Those are the main producers in the world. And finally, there's only one that's within a reasonable distance of their own territory, which is the Dutch East Indies. And the key actor, I would argue, uh, it's not just because I'm Dutch, but actually because most Anglophone historians have not thought of the fact that this oil embargo is a three-country embargo. It's a British-American-Dutch embargo. So that is important because the Japanese have simultaneously been negotiating with the Dutch East Indies over preferential access to oil production from Indonesia. And that would have given them maybe as much as 60 percent of the entire Dutch East Indies oil production, which would have taken care of their basic needs. But the important thing that happens are two. One is that the Dutch East Indies government is by that time isolated because the Netherlands has already fallen to the Nazis. So the actual Dutch government is in exile in London. So that means essentially whatever the the Dutch are going to do, they don't have a lot of independence anymore because they're now hosted by Churchill. And effectively, the Anglo-American leaders can determine what the Dutch do. The second thing is that the Japanese are so desperate for commercial expansion that they end up kind of over-egging their demands that they make to the Dutch East Indies government and the trade treaty goes nowhere. They don't get that access. And that ultimately is what makes them realize look, this is an encirclement, right? It's an ABCD encirclement, as the Japanese nationalists call it, Uh, America, Britain, um, China and and, and the the Dutch East Indies. That's the kind of box that they think that they're in. And it, it bears a really interesting parallel with the current ASML. Uh, right. I'm not saying we're in the same situation yet, but the current restrictions on, on, on chips, including ASML and the Japanese, is a, an American, um, Dutch, Japanese and English, it's our uh, embargo, but now against China. So Japan and China have just switched roles here, but the other three
0: countries are actually the same. What was the Dutch political economy? How are they thinking about managing their negotiations with Japan in 1940, 1941?
1: so they are traditionally in neutral and they have been trying to play that role for a long time they didn't participate in world war one they had no desire to enter world war two they weren't uh, really planning to enter on the side of the Brit- franco-british expeditionary force they would have opened their territory if there was a need to but they were trying to do what switzerland and denmark and, and the scandinavian countries were doing but those are invaded by hitler so Switzerland is really the only one to get away safely and so this this old traditional Dutch idea of neutrality was already basically under threat, and this is what ends up pushing them into joining the Anglo-American oil embargo. Um, and if you also think about it, right, Shell, which is uh, one of the main oil producers that is not American in this period, controls most of the Venezuelan uh, and uh, uh, also a, a lot of the um, Indonesian oil production. It's an Anglo-Dutch firm, so it's it's called Royal Dutch Shell for a reason, right? It's a like unilever one of these uh anglo-dutch capitalist enterprises so the, they're they're increasingly drifting into the anglo-american camp and and losing this traditional kind of middle position that they had between britain and, and germany yeah
0: can we say fdr had temporal claustrophobia too in starting lend-lease is, is this like a unified theory of everything i mean
1: it's an interesting question and if you read
0: the accounts
1: of people who've recently written about this, like Stephen Wertheim in his book, Tomorrow the World, right? About this sort of shift in thinking. I I think that there is a kind of sense that the whole world has changed for FDR after the fall of Paris. So the summer of 1940 is this moment where for the first time, one of the original three victors of World War I, a, a beacon of liberalism in the 18th, 19th and 20th century, is under the rule of a new kind of totalitarianism. And that's when even fairly neutralist Americans for the first time become amenable to this idea that this is really a threat to Western civilization, Nazism, and they need to do something. And it's from the summer of 1940 onwards that you you do, I think, start to see in the American elite an increasing preparedness to use these measures. And the first place where they do it is Franco and Spain. So the experience of using oil sanctions and coordinated oil sanctions between Britain and the US also starts in that summer. And one of the reasons I think that they, that the US goes into the sanctions, the oil sanctions against Japan in the summer of 1941 so blithely is that the oil sanctions in the summer of 1940 against Franco work really well. They're extremely small. They impose them for only a few weeks and then they lift them again. And they do it just to prove the point that Franco, Spain is entirely dependent on American oil. They only have to stop two tanker ships in the port of Houston and immediately, right? Spain's entire oil supply uh, can be provided by six vessels a month. So that uh, is enough of a demonstration to show that Franco better not join the axis. And it's the confidence bestowed by that sanctioned success in the summer of 1940. Again, it's kind of almost deterrence, very light usage that issues a clear threat. That basically, I think, m- makes them think that they can do the same with Japan. And, of course, here, right, racial attitudes play a role. They just think that the Japanese ultimately are easier to manage than the hot-headed Spaniards. And uh, that ultimately they won't do this. But Japan is much further away. And it actually does have a major oil producer right next to it, the Dutch East Indies, that it, it hopes it can secure. So the main objective of the Japanese campaign in the uh, uh, winter of uh, of 41, 42 is The duchies in these oil fields. There's a lot of other useful stuff for them, but the general stuff is extremely clear that that needs to be the priority. And in order to get there, you need to conquer the Philippines, you need to boot the US naval bases out of that part of Asia, right? Um, So a lot of these other things become necessary as a way of getting to Sumatra, basically.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Bet to get thirty. Thirty. Bet get thirty. Bet you get twenty. 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 To get twenty. Twenty. To get fifteen. 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 Just fifteen bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. The story of Franco being scared off joining the Axis is kind of illustrative of my biggest takeaway from your book, Nick, is that sanctions are great when you go all in and the sort of half measures of, oh, we'll do this like cute thing and have it be financial sanctions or we'll just have this like nice little escalatory ladder to like slowly try to make our adversary realize that we mean business doesn't work nearly as well as the times where the countries just say, no, you're not allowed to import any stuff, and the stuff you're not going to be allowed to import is going to be the most important thing for your economy, and we won't let you get it again until you do what we want you to do. And there are a number of moments, particularly with Nazi Germany in the mid-1930s, where that really could have stopped rearmament. And um, you know, we talked last time about Bulgaria, we talked about paraguay potentially japan in 1931 as well if the the pain spigot was turned all the way on early enough then maybe you end up not having these you know horrific sort of world shattering eventualities of of what world war ii ended up bringing us first am i wrong and second what was it about the 30s that stopped more aggressive economic actions from being taken earlier on as the tides of revanchism uh, ended up ebbing?
1: Yes. So to your first question, you are not wrong, but you are only right under certain highly specific conditions that maximal sections are the best because The two particular factors that are key to explaining the success of oil sanctions against Spain in the summer of 1940 are that Franco has just come out of this really grueling civil war. So reconstruction is paramount and he's ruling over a devastated society and he needs all the resources he can get for reconstruction. So they get him and threaten him at a moment of weakness. Secondly, he has an alternative, right? The Axis. And he goes to Hitler and asks Hitler what resources Hitler has for him. And Hitler, of course, himself is extremely anxious about his access to these things and has nothing to spare and says, sorry, but you're going to have to fend for yourself and conquer Morocco or something. So that's not exactly an attractive proposition. And ultimately that's one of the reasons why the Axis is a weak alliance, because they cannot meaningfully uh, compensate for each other's weaknesses. They actually are just shared in their vulnerabilities. So... This is one of the things that makes the situation for Spain and Japan different. And Japan still has hopes that they can win in China. And it's the classic story of you are committed to a war that's not going anywhere. It's devolved into a guerrilla war. It's gobbling up ever more resources it's like Afghanistan in 2010 or something, you know, and the Japanese military keeps telling the leadership, no, but we need one more surge and then we can win in China. And surely they want to go back to peace in East Asia and they don't want to have to fight the British Empire, the Royal Navy in Singapore and uh, the US Navy across the Pacific. But they end up being in this war against an opponent that is now receiving steadily more aid from the West and from the spring of 1941 has lent lease. And then it already becomes clear to the Japanese, look, the Chinese are going to be in this confrontation for as long as the Allies want them to be so we need to get to a deal with the allies but they now also are not only funding our opponents but also turning the screws on us how is this not already a war against us essentially and that accounts for one of these crazy things right that they declare a war that they actually know that they stand a very small chance of winning and they're almost certainly going to lose in the long run so that's that's one uh, aspect Um, The other thing is to what you asked about, right? What are the factors that are holding back tougher sanctions? Part of it has to do with the states in question needing to come up with these sanctions plans on the fly. They have some studies. I use a bunch of them as source material for my book. They're really interesting to read because they give you great analysis of different import vulnerabilities and they're very useful as uh, inside intelligence accounts of the economic history of the 30s. But they do not always have a good understanding of the world economy. That's one thing. They also have large amounts of interests involved in these international intercontinental sanctions campaigns and against Japan, the main trading partners of Japan are the colonies and the dominions of the British empire. And they actually are not in favor of sanctions on Japan. So Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand, all have an enormous amount of trade actually at stake with Japan because Japan is the only rich industrialized country in Asia, that can buy their exports so they either trade with europeans we're now all at war and then the only other place for them is um the japanese empire so having an empire for britain is actually a liability mm. it prevents them from being able to put tougher
0: pressure on japan early let's come back to nazi germany it was hitler wasn't like doing so incredible when he invaded the rhineland right and plenty of historians have written the hypotheticals of like if france just decided to fight then they would have won a war. Do you think the same would have happened if the Germans weren't confronted militarily, but in a more aggressive economic fashion in that time period? Uh, Yes, I think it would have caused huge
1: problems for the Nazi regime. And so it is an important counterfactual to ask, right, at certain moments what it would have done. Some of the vulnerabilities were compensated for because Germany got more raw materials from Southeastern Europe and from Eastern Europe where they got these preferential trade agreements and they were able to kind of bully Balkan states into giving up their resources. But they certainly remained very vulnerable. The other thing is just militarily, Czechoslovakia could have decided to fight in 1938. And there's a very good chance that Germany would have lost. The Czechoslovaks had a larger army than Nazi Germany in the fall of 1938. And they are Persuaded and actually forced by Britain and France to dismantle their border defenses and stand down with their army, and it's it's a, a huge uh, a, a role I think should be accorded to the just Munich crisis. the Sudetenland uh, issue, um, and there too you already have backup plans for an economic blockade uh, to, if there is a war that breaks out. But ultimately, the appeasement argument wins. So um, it's not even sanctions. It's, it would have been even just a basic alliance uh, integrity, right? If they had just upheld their, uh, the French particularly, their uh, pact with Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union, Germany would have faced a three-front conflict and it would have been uh, over pretty quickly. Um, In 1939, if France had invaded on the Western front right when Hitler invaded Poland, same thing. The, The German general staff would have refused to probably implement Hitler's plan. So there are many, many moments where Hitler rolls the dice and he keeps winning. But every time he does it again, he has to wager everything he
0: has gained up to then. That. And that's the story of the radicalization of, of Nazi Germany, basically. All right. World War II. It started. How do the allies take what they've learned over the course of implementing sanctions in World War I and through the League of Nations and do the best that they can to try to cut off the access from accessing financing and critical raw materials? So they do two things. One is that they had plans ready to go
1: to have a fully operating blockade bureaucracy. That's definitely in advance. So they've learned from World War One that you cannot build the blockade bit by bit, you have to just create an entirely independent ministry. And they actually renamed the ministries uh, in World War One, they were called ministries of blockade. Now they're called ministries for economic warfare.
0: Wait, why? Because they just like sound cooler, they'll have an easier time recruiting.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's that, but I think they also have a sense that they're going to start the full toolkit from the beginning. They're not going to start gently with inspecting a few ships, then maybe gathering a few statistics, then maybe doing a few negotiations with the neutrals. It's everything. Uh, controlling how much the neutrals pass on to Nazi Germany, uh, doing the naval blockade and all the intelligence gathering and the kind of diplomatic... Uh, legwork to keep the resources from flowing into Nazi Germany from the beginning yeah. um, and one of the other things that they do a, a, a good uh, job of is what they call preclusive purchasing so they literally just buy up um, the entire chromium exports of Turkey to prevent the Nazis from getting them for example uh, so that, that's one way of you know, creating a raw material or rare earth problem for your opponent is you just buy up all <laughs> the rare earths that are, around, that are produced in any given year um, in the last year, we saw an inadvertent version of that when you know the Europeans managed to make it through this Russian natural gas cutoff by buying up a lot of the LNG that wasn't being used elsewhere, um, and then you know Pakistan and Bangladesh go uh, with less of it. So I think some of this stuff is still uh, very relevant. Um, but the second thing that they do differently in World War II, the Allies, to get back to, to economic warfare and, and in World War II, is that they incorporate a new dimension, which is air power. So naval blockade is important. Um, diplomatic agreements to prevent resources from being exported. So export control, in a sense, or control at source. That's the term that's used at the time. Going to the uh, direct producer of certain commodities and trying to bring them into your alliance. And the, uh, But the final thing is air power. So there are now strategic bombers, four-engine bombers with much bigger payloads. And they employ economists from the beginning to figure out what are the weak links in the German economy? What are the networks, right? The nodal points, should we go for a kind of terror bombardment approach to demoralize the Germans, or should we actually go for the weak link in the economic structure? So there are more psychological and more economistic understandings of what the best use of air power is. And they actually, the British particularly have a very psychological understanding of it initially. So they. Some people try to make the argument that they should use it uh, in a purely economic way. But Churchill and Bomber Harris uh, have this quite colonial mindset where they think maybe we can just make the Germans crack their morale um, by bombing population centers. So they pursue these strategies side by side. And there's a big amount of fighting between uh, the two camps, basically, over uh, what the priority should be for air power. But that's the the new formula. The other thing about World War II, and, and this is really the central importance In the, in the book that I give to lease is that lease finally does this thing, which is implement the positive economic weapon. There had been the convention for financial assistance, right? The convention for financing other people's wars (laughs) that we talked about. And lease is the belated, but nonetheless global application of exactly that, which is that you must aid the victims of aggression and not just Punish the aggressors because the aggressors tend to be stronger. That's why they're aggressors, and it is important to make sure that the victims can maintain their independence as a, a coalition to support them comes into being. So it takes time to mobilize. It takes time to get your war economy up and running. In the meantime, you need to support those under attack. And lend-lease right precedes the U.S. entry into World War II by um, at least uh, nine to ten months. So it already goes into effect in February '41. So so the isolationists and the neutralists, the U.S. is already economically at war from early 41 onwards. And this is also what Hitler thinks in many ways. This is what the Japanese come to believe. The U.S. is bankrolling the war effort it's producing for its allies. But it's vital because lend lease allows the U.S. and its allies to flood the world with American war production, American goods, American experts, American engineers, American infrastructure, American money, American know-how and a, a ton um, of uh, resources that they can use in order to prolong their own fighting power. So this is what creates a sort of web of enemies that the Axis can't ultimately win against, because whenever you open a new front, you, you expand into a new zone, the allies will just find whoever's there and start funding them. And importantly, they begin, uh, the initial let bill is also meant to support Yugoslavia and Greece fighting against Italy and against uh, Nazi Germany. So it's really uh, active on multiple continents already from the beginning. And and Lease is crucial because it's the 38 countries that get Lease that are also the initial group that is invited to form the United Nations. So materially speaking, this is where the post-war order begins. Uh, it's in 41-42 already. Um, and uh, by the time they send out the invitations for the San Francisco conference in the spring of 45, the offer is basically Uh, You get an invitation if you have been a member of Lent And if you haven't been yet, you have until February 1st to sign up and then you get an invitation to be at the table to design the post-war order. So the link between them is extremely direct.
0: So Nick, so take us through the creation of the United Nations and the vision that the folks at Dumbarton Oaks and San Francisco had for what sanctions, what they hoped sanctions would be able to do in the post-war world.
1: Yes. One really interesting question, which very few people seem to have asked, is that if the conventional story that historians used to tell about sanctions in the interwar period is right, which is that they were weak and meaningless, then why did the Allies actually create this whole new international organization called the United Nations that also had sanctions in it? Right? Why didn't we just give up on sanctions? If they supposedly failed, why did we keep them? So that to understand that, you have to understand how by the time that they were fighting World War II, the Allies had come to think of their own experience of the 30s. And the lesson that they drew was not that sanctions didn't work, but that they were difficult to calibrate and that it was important to bring more countries into the sanctioning coalitions. Because at these crucial moments, they had lacked the decisive countries, right? They had lacked American participation in an embargo against Italy, they um, had lacked the Soviet Union as a participant in an embargo against Nazi Germany because they didn't really trust the Soviets, even though the Soviets made overtures they might be willing, but it wasn't clear if they could trust Stalin. By 1943, Stalin is fighting on the side of the Allies. The Soviet Union is there. The Chinese are there. So now it seems finally old Europe, the US and these new powers in Eurasia can all be in the same organization. So it's not sanctions that was the problem. It was the diplomatic coalition behind it that was incomplete and the big flanking powers on either side of Europe that can finally be brought in the US and the Soviet Union. So that's essentially the the group of countries that you get at Dumbarton Oaks. And it's the Soviets who, again, at this point are very important because they insist on having a multi-tiered sanctions procedure, but one where you can from the beginning, when the Security Council of the UN declares that there is an act of aggression use both sanctions and military measures so the other thing is that sanctions are no longer seen as the, the sole substitute for war they're an alternative but also a possible complement for war and this is the other lesson that they took from it that unless you're willing to back it up with force sanctions won't be credible and you cannot have we cannot have what we had in the interwar period which is that we ended up with a league that had no real power to declare war on behalf of its member states but that did have power to impose economic pressure. That's a halfway house. And that leads you to uh, be tough, but not be able to back up your threats, right? The turns then is suboptimal. Let's have the full panoply of the uses of force on the table. And that's ultimately what you do get in the United Nations Charter, right? And Korea, uh, Iraq in 91, all these other cases are UN military interventions where you also have sanctions against uh, the aggressor. So that's the formula that I think survives into the post-war order.
0: So, on the subject of post World War II sanctions, how much do you think that enactors of sanctions policy after World War II and modern day remember the lessons that they learned in sanctions policy during the World War II period?
1: I think during World War II, they definitely got the sense that economic pressure really mattered, and the air campaign, of course, is important to World War II to degrading and uh, undermining, also, really the fighting power of the Axis. But the other thing that we need to realize is that, of course, World War II ends with the advent of the nuclear age. So that adds a whole new dimension to strategy, to deterrence, to these sorts of things. And one of the things that you see very clearly is that sanctions are thought of as the most terrible thing that you could do to a society in the interwar period. But the existence of nuclear weapons after World War II means that they are now seen as less bad. At the same time, Precisely because nuclear weapons make conventional war riskier, it's not clear yet, right, in the 40s and 50s, whether an open war like Korea will not result in the use of nuclear weapons. MacArthur wants to drop a few tactical nukes on the North Koreans before Truman and the others hold him back. So whether conventional war is safe after 1945 is an open question. And that actually creates, again, a nice niche lower on the spectrum of force for the use of sanctions. So if conventional war is maybe too risky, you might cross the nuclear threshold if you don't want to, then actually embargoes and sanctions become useful. So by stretching the spectrum for the use of force, sanctions also survive because they now have an important role to play uh, and you can distinguish them much more clearly from the truly existential threats to humanity like nuclear weapons and full-scale uh,
0: conventional warfare. So Nick, coming back to the present day, I'm curious sort of what logics you see playing themselves out in the contemporary sort of U.S.-China tech tensions uh, compared to what you saw in um, uh, in the interwar years. Yes, um, I think one of the dangers is that
1: a lot of the history of economic warfare and the design of economic warfare is about projecting our own vulnerabilities onto our opponents. And what I mean by that is that, in my view, a lot of the current focus on restricting tech exports to China, for example, came from a a realization in the last decade that actually the West had grown very dependent on China and on taiwan and also that china was much more powerful and you could see this in the early 20th century too britain is the country that is most dependent on food imports in the early 20th century and it is britain that decides to impose a hunger blockade on central europe so some of the history of sanctions is definitely explained by taking our own worst fears and our sense of our own vulnerability, and then trying to operationalize them against our opponents. So that has both strengths and weaknesses um, in it. And the strength might be that indeed, your opponents are also, everyone has vulnerabilities. The weakness of it is maybe actually they have a different set of motivations than you. They don't have the same breaking point. They aren't, they are anxious about it too. So they'll start trying to become autarkic, but they might not actually submit to your demands if you uh, restrict uh, trade or exports with them if you if you try and weaponize that interdependence. And that's kind of what worries me right now that we are uh, in a situation where China hasn't really retaliated against any of this. but what if China blockades Taiwan rather than invades right? That seems to me one of the uh, nightmare scenarios and then the West will find itself in the position um, of having to do the Cuban Missile Crisis um the kind of uh uh, quarantine of cuba but then we are in the position of the soviet union having to run ships to supply this island um and it's china that will be in the position of the united states of kennedy in 1960 when he used the naval blockade to kind of force the Soviets to back off so i i think that this is just a very dangerous road to go down and um the other thing is, of course, Red, you've had many people on your podcast, Jordan, uh, who uh, I have learned so much from the technical experts. One of the other things I've noticed is just that the policymakers who ultimately make the decisions about the big picture roads to go down in these issues are not the technical experts. The technical experts can keep these domains separate. They can keep trade wars separate from tech competition and export controls from sanctions and these sorts of things. But ultimately, at the level of the leadership, these fears end up mingling together and it becomes very difficult to keep them apart. And you can see a little bit of it right, in in the US itself as well. Our experts are able to distinguish these things very clearly. But whether the general public and whether politicians and whether people... Um, at the real high levels of decision-making are able in the heat of the moment to keep them separate and to understand that maybe uh, these are tailored and measured policies and that they're not existential. Uh, I have worries about that because historically policymakers under pressure are bad at distinguishing between these things because we're only human and they have to integrate a lot of areas of expertise. So their fears start to mingle together. And uh, Every country has its own way of looking onto the world, but right now we're not in a a world order where a a sense of security and ease is (laughs) a generally spread kind of mindset, you know? We're getting rather into the more insecurity, obsessed with our vulnerabilities kind of mindset and trying to cover those off. So, you know, I don't think we're in a summer of 1941 situation necessarily, but it seems to me that even the argument of the decouplers um, on its own terms has a number of real weaknesses, which is that um, it, they yeah. essentially are making the bet that in the short term, the gains of decoupling are bigger than the long-run uh, strength that China will get from no longer being dependent on the US. In the short run, China will be dependent, right? In the in the immediate near-term future, they're going to have real difficulties. But eventually, I think it's hard to see how they won't get at least some of that capacity. It may be a matter of time, but once you have a China that's truly really independent, where will that bring us China relations? So... Is it betting on the short run too much at the expense of the long run? That's one worry I have. Yeah, those are some of the questions. So
0: Let's close with some book recommendations, Nick. What do you have for us? And what's the theme connecting them? Well, uh, the theme connecting them is that they're all books that I
1: like and would like more people (laughs) to read. But no, the theme connecting them is um, how to deal with change and how to understand change in uncertain times. And uh, my first recommendation is a great book written by um, Rosie Waldeck. It's called Athene Palace. And it's about uh, her spending time in 1940, 1941 in the uh, the Athene Palace Hotel in Bucharest. So this is as Europe has already fallen to the Nazis. And she has all these incredible interactions with fascists, Romanians, Nazis, uh, diplomats, oil traders people coming together in a small neutral uh, balkan country and it's a great example of how you write a memoir uh, and an account of a place in those uncertain times that is both extremely clear headed about why this project will fail and quite uh, uh, smart about trying to understand your opponent on their own terms Uh, it's even more impressive when you realize that she was a german jewish emigrant who was a a naturalized American correspondent for the New Yorker. And she has these very long exchanges with incredibly uh, anti-Semitic Nazis. So it's a great read. Um, The other um, book that I have is um, just a phenomenal, it's a very different time period. It's about antiquity and it's Peter Brown's The World of Late Antiquity. I uh, know fewer books that do so much in so little space. And it's the book that actually created the whole understanding of late antiquity as a time period between the end of the Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages, that it wasn't just about decline. It was also about reinvention, about adaptation and cultural change. I think it's actually an interesting book to read as we have these discussions about multipolarity and the sense that America as an empire uh, and whether it will persist or whether it's declining or whether we should fear what comes next or actually uh, not so. It's a much more positive reassessment of that period and getting away from these sort of declinist fears, but um, a, a phenomenally uh, learned and erudite book. Um, and uh, it's out in 1971, but still reads super well, extremely well written, also. Um, then um, one of my other uh, books that I also picked, um, partially because of the topic and partially because of the style, is uh, Cecily Wedgwood's The Thirty Years' War. That's a fantastic history of one of the most meaningless, senseless conflicts in (laughs) European history. It's, uh, in terms of prose writing, some of the best historical prose in the English language. Just concise, clear, crisp, memorable. Um, But what Wedgwood really does extremely well, and um, only a few histories of big conflicts and wars do this, is ask the question not just about why wars start, but why they keep going on. And particularly long conflicts, right? So we we are obsessed with the origins of World War One, the origins of World War Two, but with World War One, particularly, uh, which was a much more meaning, relatively meaningless conflict. In World War Two, I think World War Two had real stakes, uh, important ones, right? And we should be happy to decide that one won. But World War One, it's already a, a more ambiguous picture. Um, And we need to ask why countries keep on fighting. I also think with the war in Ukraine now going into its second year, right, and we have these discussions about war aims and what are the war aims on both sides and is it good or bad to negotiate and how do we get a sense of what the world after the war might look like? Um, What are the factors that play into continuation uh, of war? Um, Even when increasingly lots of uh, people come to be aware of the costs of war, and uh, ideological material factors, religious beliefs, personal gain, territorial expansion, economic preponderance, all that stuff comes into it. So Wedgewood, The 30 Years War, it remains a really uh, fantastic history book. And then I think the final book that I will uh, bring in um, just to keep my recommendations uh, sort of (laughs) to a manageable amount, I love a good diary also. Uh, Waldeck is already good, but um, some of the best diaries of the interwar period, and actually I draw them in my own book, are Ivan Meisky's diaries of the 1930s. He was the Soviet ambassador to London. Uh, he was a Polish Jew who had been a Menshevik in the Russian Revolution, so Stalin was extremely uh, tolerant in a way to even let him be in the diplomatic corps. But Mysky became super good friends and even chummy with Winston Churchill, with the King, with a lot of figures in British elite high society. So it's a bit like reading Evelyn Waugh or something like that about uh, British high society in the '30s, but seen from the point of view of a Soviet diplomat who was extremely well connected. And he has—he was the first person to spell out this counterfactual of what if the imperialists had just struck a deal with Mussolini in '35 and focused on containing Hitler. Uh, That was to him always the main threat. So that's where I first became alive to this. And it's very important to, I think, use diaries to expand your sense of the possible because sometimes it might just even be a stray remark that someone puts down on paper. But then when you actually start investigating it and you look at the German side of things, they're very fearful the Soviet Union is going to join. They know that they would not have a fighting chance with the Soviet Union, join the sanctions front with the League of Nations. And you start to study the possibilities from sources that Maisky could have never had access to. Then you realize this is a plausible counterfactual. We should ask this question seriously. So diaries are vital to understanding what happened, what didn't happen, and why things happened in history. And um, they also make everything relatable and human. So I'll end with uh, with that recommendation.
0: Nick, this was such a blast. Congratulations. And uh, thank you so much for being a part of China talk.
1: My pleasure, honestly. And uh, again, uh, it's really lovely that you uh, both uh, had such good questions and took time to read this whole thing. And I hope that more people will take an interest in interwar history. It, it's uh, uh, eerily relevant, but also really important, I think, uh, as we enter uh, this new age of instability. And uh, yeah, it's, it holds a lot of uh, valuable stuff for us. But uh, particularly happy that there are people like you guys who take an interest
0: in this. So, uh, Yeah, man, Cold War is overrated. It's all about the 30s.
1: Hold that tiger. Hold that
0: tiger.
1: Hold that
0: tiger. Hold
1: that tiger. Hold that tiger. Hold that tiger. Hold that tiger. tiger.
0: Where's that tiger? Where's that tiger? Here's that tiger. Where's that tiger? Here's that tiger. Where's that tiger? Where's that tiger? Here's that tiger. Here's that tiger. <speaking in the background> ba ba be di 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 da 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 wa ba ba be da di be di 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 da wa la la Tonk, donk, donk,
1: donk, Where's that tiger? Where's that tiger? Here's that tiger. Where's that tiger? Here's that tiger. Where's that tiger? Here's that tiger. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Hold that tiger.